the Innovators Resource Network of Western Massachusetts welcomes our speaker on June 1st, 2011, Warren Tuttle, the President of the United Inventors Association. So please welcome Warren Tuttle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we, we have such a small group tonight because of, I think Surely not because of the speaker. Usually every seat is full. Really? And I have been up here before, so it's uh, it's great to see you again. But uh, uh, is everybody come? Can you can you see me? We got the one column that you're hiding here. Um, so I, this is so you know. I just want to make sure this is really informal tonight, and that we cover uh, whatever you guys want to cover. I, I usually uh, talk on the subject of of what I call uh, licensing a product versus taking it to market on your own. And we can go in that direction, or we can go in a whole bunch of other directions. I like to say I've made every mistake taking products to market that one can make at least 100 times. <laughs> and I've learned a lot of valuable lessons. But, uh, but anyway, let me, let me first uh, say, uh, I just was talking to Rick Ricard, and he told me, I don't know if you guys have, the person died tonight with a tree falling on their car. So this is a serious event tonight. So anyway. I guess I bring the bad, bad weather with me. Um, so what I'm going to do, uh, if, if you guys want to just take my, uh, I have cards later I can give out, but that's my uh, email address and my phone number. And I'm, I'm going to spell out my, my website is, is uh, www.monashimarketing, just like it's spelled there with no blank, monashimarketing.com. And... Um, I'll take you through a few slides to show you a little bit of what's on the site and what I do professionally um, in a moment. Uh, but if you want to just jot that, that down, I just want to make sure if you guys ever want to call me or check out my website later, it's great. So I wear a couple of different hats, and uh, one of them is a, is, is a product developer and a launcher of products, particularly houseware products, which I'll go into. Uh, but I also, uh, as Karen introduced me, I'm, I'm, I'm the president of the United Inventors Association. Has anyone ever heard of the United Inventors Association? Yeah. Well, we, we are uh, the largest, we are the largest inventor organization in the world. It's very cool. We have about 12,000 members, and uh, we have about 80 clubs, and, and we don't own the clubs, but we do, put, we do have a certification process where your club here in Springfield and, and about 80 other clubs around the country go through a certification process which says that you're being run properly and you're educating inventors. And so that's another way that we, we interact with inventors. And uh, we are very involved these days in a couple of things that I just wanted to chat about in the beginning. Um, number one, we really want to do more to help clubs. It's a big, I, I believe in clubs. I belong to the I'm from Connecticut, and I belong to IAC, the Inventors Association of Connecticut. And uh, I came up through the club, so I understand the power of clubs and communities and, and learning from each other. So uh, we're trying to do more to bolster that. We also we have new uh, equipment for video equipment, for speakers and stuff from around the country. So we have a new executive director named Mark Ryland. He's really doing a great job. So we're really excited about that. Bless uh, you. We also, uh, we also have started something really new that's working out big time for us and we're going to expand the program. We now run the inventor spotlight areas at three industry trade shows. Um, we run the event at the National Hardware Show. I just came from there last week or two weeks ago in Las Vegas. Uh, what is the inventor spotlight area there? It's 100 booths that inventors uh, take out. The booths are about half the price of a regular booth for manufacturer. 
and they can take their products and show, and you get all of the industry people wandering through the booth, and uh, some licensing deals were conducted there and so forth. It's a great showcase. We also had an education forum day there where we had the director of the patent office, Dave Kaplis, come, and we also had a guy named A.J. Cabani. He owns a company called Telebrands. I don't know if you guys have ever heard. It's a, the largest infomercial. Remember Billy Mays? Yeah. He, he's a Billy Mays guy. So How can we forget? Yeah. Well, Bill, I was sad day, but 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 AJ uh, was really the guy who put Billy on the map. So so we had we had speakers all day, and we also do this at the Hard Houseware Show, a National Houseware Show, and we also do it at the PGA Golf Show, and we are working on trying to do shows at the Toy Show, Automotive Fairs, and um, uh, Medical Supplies. So. So we're expanding this, but it's another way for us to get out there. Now, you probably remember the Yankee Expo. Sure. Used to be down in, in Connecticut, which yeah. was great, but they stopped it a couple years Stopped ago. it because what happens is these sort of national shows, and I'm actually going out in a few days to Minnesota, to the MIC, Minnesota Vendors Congress, yeah, yeah, River yeah. Falls, yeah. which is a great, great show, but it's about two hours outside of Minneapolis. What's happened is these, these events have become quite regional. So, so uh, nobody's really, you know, you have some local folks coming to it, but it's, doesn't have the national press. So now if you have a hardware pro a product or a, or a house source product, you can now go to these shows and get tremendous you know, industry-wide coverage. So, so these are some of the things we're working on at the UIA. And the other thing we're working on, and I'll, uh, depending upon how much you want to go into this, but we also are very, very involved uh, on the ground with the uh, patent office, US patent office. I was just there for the whole day on Friday. I go down about four or five times a year. And we have tried to be helpful to them to getting information out. Do, do you guys follow the site? Have you seen the new Inventor's Eye uh, publication? Uh, yeah, if you go on the USPTO website and you sign up for it, they have a new publication that comes out quarterly for inventors called Inventor's Eye. It's really a great little publication. Uh, we try to get out information. But I don't know if you guys have heard or what you've heard. Uh, I find that people have heard a little bit, tidbits here and there, but there's about to be pretty major patent reform coming through, um, and it's going to be voted on, not next week because they're all off next week, but then the following week it's going to come down. So the first, first, second and third week of June, this will be negotiated and fought about. It's already, patent reform has already passed the Senate, and it's in the House now, so they have to come up with a bill and they'll reconcile it. Uh, I don't know how much you've heard, whether, I mean, some people are very animated both ways on this subject. I don't know if you want to talk about patent reform at all. I, I happen to know a lot about the subject. But, it, but, but right now, there's about a 750,000 uh, patent back, backlog at the patent office, which is totally unacceptable. Anything outside of about 150,000 backlog is, they, they just don't have the, the equipment, the help, and everything to, to process these. And where patents used to take a year, a year and a half, now they're taking four and a half years, and it's just getting longer. So uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons for this. Uh, they, they have antiquated equipment, they don't have enough staff. Probably the heart and soul of it is that they don't get to keep the own, their own money. When they charge you guys fees and they bring in money uh, for patent filings, they don't get to keep that money. It all goes to the U.S. Congress, and guess what comes back to them? Only a part of money. <laughs> so they actually collect over $100 million a year, more than they give. Uh, but they're, they're, the, the new legislation will allow them to keep their own funds, which will allow them to process things a lot quicker. Um, there's the, the, there's the whole issue of first, to, first inventor to invent versus first inventor to file, which, which sets off a firestorm in some areas. I've studied the subject quite a bit. We're already a first inventor to file system in the U.S., and I'd be happy to chat with any of you individually or later if you, if you want to know about it more. Um, there's a lot of other, other reforms to allow you to file easier in other countries and other things. So, so overall, it's, it's a long past few stuff. So anyway, that's my UIA uh, hat. We, we, uh, by the way, 
one of the things when I came on board and became the president of the UIA two years ago, we used to charge $100 for membership. It's now free, okay? Um, we don't charge for that. We believe that if there's going to be anything charged, it should be from the local inventor club and we're there to support. And one of the cool things on the site is, the site is uiausa.org, is there's a 10-part mini-series, uh, How to Invent. And if you get a chance to watch some of the episodes, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool educational tool. So. so we're trying. And then one of the things we also were down at the patent office was to try to get money from, from them because there's only three places to get money. One is from you guys, the inventors, and we're trying not to do that. Two is from corporations, which we do, which we do certify companies. And the third is from um, benefactors and, and uh, groups that can, can help to fund some of what we're doing. So anyway, any questions on the way? <laughs> Okay, so let's have some fun today and talk about, about what everybody really wants to talk about, which is, let's see, uh, why is this not going forward? Okay, okay, all right. So let's talk about what I do and, 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 and we'll take this any direction you want to go. Anyway, Julia. <laughs> well, I, I, I was at a very large, had a very large audience recently in California and I said, does anybody recognize who that is? And someone said, is that you with a mustache? I said, not me, I'm talking about the other person. Anyway, that is Julia Child. And I put that picture up because it's one of my favorite pictures because uh, I used to have more hair then, but also it proves that I'm 6'3 and I'm much taller than Julia Child. So this, she was no longer. I was told. Someone said she was 63. But anyway, I am a housewares person. I um, grew up in the housewares industry um, 35 years ago out of college. I uh, went to work for a department store in New York City called Abraham and Strauss, and I became a cookware and a small electrics buyer there. And then I went off to start my own um, specialty store called the Complete Kitchen in Connecticut. And I actually had five stores at one time called uh, the Complete Kitchen. And I also had a uh, food business called the Good Food Store, and that was prepared foods and catering. And then I had a cooking school that we had about 120 classes a year that we offered, and we used to get people like Julia to come and visit us, and Amarola Lagasse, and Bobby Flay, and anybody who's on the Food Network today, we, we pretty much had Martha Stewart, I bring them up before she went to prison. Uh, a lot of our staff actually worked for Martha because she was up in Westport. Uh, we had also local chefs and so forth. And so we were in the business before pretty much everybody else in the early 80s of selling cooking equipment. And it was, for, for women, it was like a hardware store for women. That's what we used to call ourselves. And uh, we, we basically, if you wanted to learn how to cook, we'd teach you. And if you wanted to cook yourself, we'd give you the implements. And if you didn't feel like cooking, we'd, we'd make it for you and cater it for you. So we had this all under one roof, and it was a really fun show. Um, while I was at um, uh, the, the store, and I did this for about, I started classically as a buyer for a New York City department store called Abraham and Strauss, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a big store in the city for a long time. I came up and I did these stores for a number of years. Uh, a guy walked in the store one day, and his name was Tom Risch, and he, uh, let me just go to the next slide, and he had uh, uh, invented the, the product in the upper right-hand part of the screen here, which is called Misto. And as someone said earlier, it's an olive oil sprayer. But back when he showed this to me, uh, which was in 1997, uh, nobody had ever heard of such a device. Everybody's familiar with PAM, right? And, and PAM is, there's about 100 million canisters of PAM sold every year in the, in the 
grocery stores. But Pam basically is a low-grade vegetable oil that has preservatives in it, so it doesn't taste very good. But uh, not only that, it uses butane fuel. So if you get it too close to a flame or stove, it could explode. So Tom developed this canister that sprayed olive oil. Really, olive oil has a different viscosity than water, so it, it, it took some uh, patentable uh, nozzle. And uh, the container, it's all pumps naturally so that uh, there's no uh, butane fuel needed. And when he showed it to me, I got all excited because I always had a good eye for new products, and we took pride in being the first ones. And this time I said to him, you know, if you don't have anyone to help you, because he really didn't know, you know, much about how to take it out, I said, I'd love to help you. So we, we took it out first to specialty stores on the East Coast uh, from Boston to New Jersey, and then we, we uh, then went to Bloomingdale's, and we started selling Bloomingdale's, and we took it to Target. We, we ended up selling 1.2 million units the first year, and we made them all in Connecticut, Bethel, Connecticut, which is really cool. Uh, we had an assembly line of people. And in the beginning, we could only make 100 or 200 a day. By the end, we could make um, thousands a day. And we needed to because we sold all, you know, we ended up selling all these units. It wasn't the most efficient process, but it was all under one roof. And uh, we all made it here in America. I gave one to the governor of Connecticut uh, to show Governor Rowland, to show him that we were actually manufacturing and shipping things out and overseas. We actually set it up in Europe and we're selling around the world. And about two months later, he got indicted and went to jail. I think he's still in jail. So, uh, but uh, it was sprayed around the bars and squeezed out. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was, uh, he actually looked at it and made a few jokes about it. But, but how few products are actually manufactured here in the US and shipped overseas? So, so. so that was my first adventure, and I had the stores at the same time. So I said, you know, this is what I really want to do. I want to work with. Uh, uh, Tom was a, was, a, was a wild inventor. He was real fun to work with. We, we had a real good run. So uh, I don't have it up on the screen because I took it out of my memory, but then I went ahead after I did the Mr. deal, and I worked with a few people on a device that became a stirring device and we, um, for, for, for saucepans. And it was really cool. It folded up to about the size of that coffee cup and had spring-loaded arms that dropped down and had a little adjustable paddle. And, you could put this on the stove, and it had a, it was battery operated, and and uh, so that if you're making soups or you know anything, soups, pastas, beans, anything required stirring, uh, and uh, put our heart and soul into this effort, uh, filed for patents and so forth. Went uh, to the Chicago Houseware Show, was declared the best new product of the Houseware Show. The Today Show came in, put us on on the air. It's the really most exciting new product. Took uh, orders for over 100,000 pieces. It was so exciting, and, and the whole thing was a total bust, a bomb. It never sold at retail. And so, it, by the way, I had this figured out. I had a high-end one called Stir Chef, uh, which was a $29.99 unit that, by the way, Bed Bath, I don't know if you've ever dealt with, they wanted to pay $12 for $12 for $30. That's the mark. They want to make $18, 60 points. But then we took the same thing, and we put it in a red box. We call it Easter. We sold that to Walmart, to Walmart for the same 12 bucks, and they put it out 20 bucks. So everybody was happy. We, we ran a test on TV that failed, and then we put it out in the shelves, basically because of my success with Misto, I got in a lot of doors, and it didn't sell. Uh, no matter what we did, it wouldn't sell. We eventually had to mark them down. It was a very, very painful experience. So uh, I got the high from Misto, the low from Stir Chef and Easy Stir, and along the way, this guy named Saul Paulder kept coming to me, what ended up being developed in the lower right-hand corner in the smart spin. Do you guys ever hear a smart spin? It was a, on TV for many years. It was a uh, 48 lids in storage containers and a Lazy Susan that would spin around and then come off the shelf. Really tremendous product. And he kept calling me up saying, you know, you got to help me, you got to help me. But I was trying to shut the other business down. 
So eventually, one day I said, I'm ready now to help you, and helped him put that together, and then felt that the best way to take that to market was through infomercial. So took that out, and was a hit from the word go. We, we ended up selling um, uh, millions, over 10 million so far, uh, been sold, although the product slowed down dramatically. But in one year, we brought in 14 containers a day for a whole year <laughs> in this country. There were five different factories with 10 sets of tools, and I learned the power of infomercials. The product on the lower left was the product of the guy, a chef came to me, and he had developed the perfect pan for flipping and sauteing and tossing things. And so that was a pan that uh, we helped develop and uh, took out to market. It had about a one or two year run. It didn't, didn't have a long shelf life. It did pretty well for about one year, but didn't really catch on, but it was, it was nonetheless a success story. And then what I did was, uh, I was doing all these products and running around, and I was approached one day by uh, the head of a company called Lifetime Brands. Has anyone ever heard of Lifetime Brands? A uh, few people, okay. It's a large uh, housewares company, and it's, uh, they don't make anything with a plug. They don't get involved in any electrics, they, but, they, but they have about 30,000 products. Uh, they're the largest kitchen uh, utensil manufacturer in the world. They, they own Farbaware. They make products under Cuisinart, KitchenAid, Pedrini, all these brand names. They have 32 brand names. They also uh, do a lot of bakeware, cookware. They also, on the tabletop side, they own towel silver, they own Macasa, they own false scrap, they own all these. Very big, if you go down to their showroom, in fact, let's see if I have a picture of their showroom. Oh. Um, okay, oh, there we go. They, that's, their, that's a picture just of a portion of their showroom. Their showroom's the size of a football field, it's 100 yards long. And uh, they, they uh, had never, had never gone outside the company for a new idea, okay, ever. Uh, everything, they have 50 people that work in the design and development department. They have cubicles and, you know, people that tell them to do this, do that, and everything. A lot of the feedback came from, um, from retailers. Uh, but my point to them was you need to look outside for innovation. There's people all over the country inventing things and you want to tap into that. So uh, that whole area of what we call now open innovation is something that I pitched them on and we decided that they really needed uh, someone to come in and help them set it up. So, so philosophically inside the company I've been trying to work with them on accepting inventors and new submissions and ideas and uh, getting them acclimated to, to uh, what the needs are of independent inventors. And on the other hand, uh, trying to educate inventors and find inventors and educate them on, on what it takes to get into a, a larger company. Um, so along the, the way, we've, we've now done 27 licensing deals in the last two years with Lifetime Brands, so things are picking up steam. I've looked at a lot of products, um, and we'll go into a little bit tonight what's involved between licensing and... Uh, yep. Are you trying to get a standardized deal, licensing deal with them? Well, uh, I, w we have a template, you know, um, that we use now in the building for, for standardized things, which I'll go over, you know, with you today. But, I, but uh, yes, we have a framework that it's, it's, it's quite easy now for us to spot a new idea or for an inventor to come if we like something to, to, to then license that and, and take it to an agreement. So, so we'll talk a little bit about that today, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of my, my background and where I sort of developed from. And this product in the upper left is we have two or three of these 27 deals that have already started to get, get you know, become big in the marketplace. 
and the product in the upper left is called the odor absorbing splatter screen. And so it's a quarter odor absorber plus a splatter. So yes. I see that plus a splatter screen. Yes. So I never, oh, that's exactly awesome. what it is. And and you know there's uh, uh, splatter screens have been around for ages, and they're pretty generic. You know, so Lifetime sold them, but it wasn't there wasn't anything about the brand that was helpful. So this gentleman who uh, patented this came in with a charcoal carbon filter, carbon charcoal filter, which blends into the screen now. So now it takes out all the odor. And when you're done with it, you can either put it in a top shelf dishwasher or you wash it with soap and water. And as it dries, it reactivates the carbon. So it's it's tremendous and it works fabulously well. And we'll, we'll sell over a million splatter screens this year. And it's allowed lifetime brands to basically dominate now the, the splatter screen category, which is a big which is a big category. So that's that's a real that's a real example of a win. So so lifetime brands, you know a little bit about them. So so that's my background. Um, so I've had a few successes. I've had four products that have been million plus unit sellers. I'd like to say I've helped make several people more than that. But um, so as you listen to people, because I go around the country a lot and I try to help inventors, and there are people running around, and some people are really helpful, and there are many good people, and then there's a lot of not so helpful people around the country. So you have to differentiate between who are the ones you can trust and who are the ones you can't. So I always say to people, here's a really simple way to just ask people, what have you done? What have you accomplished? Tell me some of the products you've brought to market. And, and you'll find that even with the big companies, these big submission corps, they don't have any winners, okay? You take a company like Davidson's, you guys have heard of Davidson's, they're, a, they're one of these sort of uh, late night infomercial, I'm not, they have their ads on TV, their submission corp. Uh, I did more licensing deals last year than they did, and they, they get hundreds of thousands of leads. So uh, be, always be wary too of, of people that ask you for money up front, because anybody that wants money from you up front, from the word go, is probably more interested in your money than they are in helping you. Usually the helpful people will, will partner and help you and direct you because they want something on the back end if the product's successful. I like to say that I've made all my money in the last 10 years on four products. The other 2,000, you know, weren't, but hopefully I directed people and, and helped them in some way, one way or another. So, so anyway, so that's my background. And what I wanted to talk to you today is I, I, I both had experience in, in uh, licensing, a lot of experience in licensing, but I've also taken products to market. And uh, there's no question that if you want to go on your own to market uh, and you hit it big, there's more profit margin in that. But it's a lot harder. It's a lot more work. It's a lot more investment. And uh, I want to talk tonight about some of the some of the things. Now, have any of you guys ever licensed a product? Have you? So, uh, so we'll talk about um, you know basically start from the, from the beginning and. And more and more with this whole world of open innovation and companies looking out, what companies want to do is they want to license, you know, your 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 product. And when they do that, the question is, what are they licensing? Okay. And um, if you just have an idea, um, chances are you're not going to get a licensing deal. Uh, ideas are important, but if they're not protected in some way, then anybody can take them and there's no value. There's no reason why a company's gonna pay you for an idea when their competitor can knock it off and not pay anything. So the first step really is in licensing, which is really using others, you know, using larger established companies to take your product to market, is the first thing you need to develop is sort of your intellectual property, your IP, your patents, your patents and trademarks. We were just talking today, tonight, have any of you besides been down in the patent office and it's uh, got 10, 12,000 employees, big office, one of, the, one of the first three buildings in Washington, D.C. in 1792. The first 
head of the patent office was Thomas Jefferson. And patents are just as vibrant and alive today, and, and the feeling is, is that this, you have a right here in America to protect your intellectual property. So when you come up with an idea, you need to, one of the first things you need to do is check that idea out and see if anybody's thought of it before you. And that means you need to sort of develop the product to a point where you can see what features or, as I say at the patent office, what claims are appropriate to whatever it is that you're developing and designing. Now sometimes, if you're an engineer, you can do this yourself. Uh, sometimes if you're not an engineer, you're just a clever person, you're, you're going to have to partner up with an engineer so that you can de determine specific claims. And then you need to go out and do a search, and it's pretty, pretty easy to do a, a modified simple search today. You can go on the USPTO, USPTO.gov website, and you can do a search, put in keywords and search and see if there's any, any patentable patents that are out there that are similar to what you're pursuing. The other way to go is on Google today. You can do patent searches on Google. And without spending a dime, I mean, one of the one main things is you, without spending a lot of money, without spending anything, you can see if there's other stuff that's already been out there. Like we found when we did our little saucepan stir, that after we got the whole thing developed, that somebody had already patented the spring loaded on. So I actually had to go back to the guy and kind of deal with the guy after the fact. My partners wanted to go around and they wanted to go. I, I don't believe, I felt, well, why not pay them 3% you know, for, for the technology? Everybody's, you know. But, uh, but that's, what, that's what you want to do. Yes? Does a patent lawyer have any advantage to doing, if you do a diligent, uh, exhaustive search, do they have, do you need to go to them? You, you eventually, the answer is yes, but not in the beginning necessarily. And the answer is yes, they will do a much more thorough search than you will. Do they have more access? Or yes, they have more access. Sure. They have more access, they pay for more information, more databases. But initially, like when, I, when someone comes to me with a, with, with a product idea that hasn't been patented, the first thing I ask them is what type of search have you done? And if they told me they've done their own search, at least I have a, a general concept that, that they're probably heading in the right direction. It's, it, now, it's not the end all. Eventually, someday, when you go to file for an, a patent, that's one of the key things that a patent lawyer does, is does, does an extremely thorough search. I mean, they will, they will pull out stuff you never dreamt of that you didn't have access to. That's what a good patent attorney will do. So, so my answer to your question is, in the beginning, you don't need a patent attorney. But if you, as you get serious, as, as you feel like you're getting things out, I mean, you can, you can do your own initial patent search. You can even file for your own provisional patent. Now, I'm going to explain that. And I don't know how much experience you guys have on patents, but there's a couple of different types of patents. First of all, there's utility patents versus design patents, okay? Uh, utility patents are much more valuable, okay? There's uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're in a nice first building here today. We're in the basement. <laughs> well, we got food and we got, you know, so, uh, so it's a secure bill, I mean, it's a pretty solid bill. Yeah. Uh, utilities are, are usually functional utility uh, claims that are quite valuable that nobody else can copy. Design patents are usually more the look, the aesthetics, you know, the shapes and so forth. Um, at a company like Lifetime Brands and a lot, of, a lot of companies that I know, we don't have a lot of interest in, in design patents because they're, they're, they're hard to, to defend. They're easy to issue, they're hard to defend. I guess in the dinnerware area, we, 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 we would accept design patents and stuff, but certainly on the, on the kitchen utensil and cookware side, we're looking for, for utility patents. So then within the utility area, um, you've got provisional patents and what I call non-provisional when you convert them. A provisional is a 12-month is a filing 
that you can almost do on your own. I mean, you might get an attorney to sort of give you advice, and if you have an attorney, do you guys have attorneys that are members of the club here? Michael Blake was at Get Michael, point, yeah, he'll, he'll but, but he's going to be coming in as the guest speaker in a few months. So. Yeah, and sometimes you can yeah. for, you can get him to look over your, and you could even file for your own if you really want to do it on your own to get a provisional, and that'll last you 12 months. In, within 12 months, you've got to convert it to an official patent filing, but that buys you 12 months. And one thing that the UIA we've been instrumental in is trying to get them to extend the 12-month provisional to a 24 oh. And, and that's happening now, but there's certain qualifications with that, so it's a little, a little more complicated, it seems. But, but it, it is something that we're, we're pushing hard on. But when you finally get ready to do a full patent filing, the right type of utility, non-provisional full patent filing, you really should either get a patent lawyer or a patent agent, okay? Have you guys heard, ever heard of a patent agent, okay, patent agents? Patent agents, it's the only area in U.S. law where someone who's not, has not passed the bar can actually represent and help you and assist you in, these, in that legal manner. Now, they cannot fight the patent out in court someday. They cannot defend you, but they can help you file for the patent. And patent agents tend to be um, less expensive. Yeah, and they're usually pretty good, too. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> What's the best way to locate a uh, patent agent or a patent attorney that's knowledgeable in your field? Sure. Well, first of all, there, there's organizations dedicated to both uh, uh, patent attorneys and patent agents. Just Google search them. Uh, the former, my predecessor at the UIA is the president of the, of the Patent Agent Association of America. I forget the exact name of it. But if you go on and put Patent Agent Association in Google, I'm sure it'll pop right up. And then you can find out who a patent agent is in your area up here. Because you want to probably work with, you don't have to, but you probably want to work with one locally. If you don't care that they're local, I can recommend uh, Ron Reardon out of Atlanta, Georgia. I know Ron. You know Ron? Okay. He's I was a member of the uh, Georgia Veterans. Oh, in Norcross? Yeah, yeah. Did you hear me speak down there? <laughs> no, I, I, actually, I've been, I've been here for a few years. Okay. I'm originally from Springfield, but I went to school in Georgia State now oh, for okay. a while. Yeah. So yeah, it's a great buffet. Club. Yeah. yeah, the buffet, yeah. <laughs> buffet. I, know. I know, they all uh, bought me a lunch at the buffet and the way I eat. Um, it's funny though, I had a, I had a uh, uh, the Norcross uh, Mentors Club, they, it was a particularly well attended session that day, and I had all my notes, I used to have my notes on three by five cards, and when I came up, I tripped, and they all went flying, and, and then I, I looked around, and then I said, ah, what the heck, and I just gave it from scratch, and that's what I do from now on. But uh, no, that's a great club, and Ron Williams a great guy, but he, he, he could do it long distance for you, or if you want, I'm sure there's people here in the Springfield area that, that um, there is also an, uh, an organization called the AIPLA, AIPLA, which is the American, I guess, Institute of Patent Legal Association, something, whatever. It's AIPLA, so it's the patent lawyers. They have about 17,000 members, and again, you can see who's a member of that. But I'm sure uh, Mike, Mike Blake is going to come here uh, next to speak. He's a patent attorney. And, you know, you, 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 it's two things. You want somebody to get along with and trust, and, and then someone who's not going to charge you. You know, uh, as an independent inventor, uh, we understand lim resources are limited, so you, you, you want to make sure you negotiate, you know, good, good price. Because when it comes to patent filing, uh, most of the expense is the, is the attorneys. You know, it's really not the fees. So, so, so you, if you pursue, pursue the patent, which is your, your uh, American right to do so, and, and uh, by the way, it, your patent doesn't necessarily have to be issued uh, if you file for it and uh, you're in good standing and you have a good attorney who's done a patent search for you and he can write an opinion letter that says this is a thorough search, that will be well received by companies like Lifetime Brands. 
And uh, basically what you're, you're going to do then is you're going to uh, make a royalty, you know, and, and uh, that's a, an amount per unit that uh, can either be, term, be determined by a percentage or a dollar amount per unit. And there's advantages to negotiating each way, but a fair royalty in the housewares industry is typically, they say as a rule, is 3 to 7%, but I've never seen a deal over 5%. So I'd like to say it's 3 to 5%. Sometimes if it's a really low price item, like it's something that retails for a buck or two, uh, you can turn around and say, I don't want, to, I don't want 3 to 5%, can you give me a dime a unit or something like that? And it can come out to a little bit more. But as a rule of thumb, uh, like in Lifetime, we try to do all our deals at 5%, unless there's a, some reason why we can't hit a price point. But basically, the royalty per unit is something that, in the beginning, it seems like, and by the way, that royalty should be based upon the wholesale price that, the, that they sell it to the retailers for. I've seen deals done on wholesale. I've seen deals done on FOB China, which is a much lower price, and I've seen it done on, on landed cost when the goods hit the U.S., I've seen them done on everything, but the highest royalty is typically on wholesale, and that's what you want. So if you do a 5% wholesale deal, that's a, really, that's a really good deal, at least in like the hardware, housewares industry. I'm not saying others. You have to kind of research your particular industry, and you might say, well, how do I do that? Well, one of the things is if you get into negotiations with the company, you might ask the company, what's your range and what's, what's, what's your range? You know, the other thing is to try to, try to ask around and, and other inventors come to clubs and try to share information in the industry. So um, there's a second part, though, of, of doing a licensing deal, and that is, besides the royalty rate, you really want uh, to establish minimums with the company. Uh, it's hard in the first year for there to be any minimums because the company is going to be developing tooling to get the product uh, up, and usually it takes nine to 12 months to get the thing built and out to market. So they usually do zero in the first year. But then the second, third year, of the agreements, you want sort of an escalating uh, minimums. Lifetime brands, and I know this is information everybody always loves to hear, we, we do typically on a $20 retail items, we do zero pieces the first year, uh, $25,000 the second year, and $50,000 the third year, and forevermore. If we don't do at least 50,000 pieces, then, then you could pull out of the deal. Okay? So whatever it is, whatever it's fair, the minimum is, by the way, that odor screen I showed you, we have a minimum of 50,000 units this year. We're going to sell it for a million. It's not like we want to sell the minimum. It's just that you want the company to invest enough time and effort to at least get it out there and sell it to the minimum. Excuse me, folks. Just to so let you know, we have another one on the way. Okay. Okay. A another There's storm? A down here. Another tornado. Another tornado? Yes. So, uh, we're in the basement, right? When oh, yes. is it? Any time line on it? Or? It's no time for it. It's just got to go Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> Can I bring my car in? No, sure. no. Um, so uh, minimums are, are just a lot of a lot of times inventors. It, it happens almost every time I do a deal. I come back and I say, well, there's a minimum of second year of twenty five thousand, fifty thousand, and they all forget. Well, I want to sell more than fifty thousand. Well, so does the company. Okay, they're not getting into it. But you want to have some recourse so that they're not making best efforts or. The products are selling, and you don't think they're doing a good job. That it's automatically built in. You can pull the patent and go out and shop with other people. Uh, and then the other thing is sometimes you can get a signing advance um, for, or, or sometimes an advance on future royalties. A lifetime, unfortunately, our advances have come down as we've gone on because we're doing more licensing deals, and, and not all the products make it. 
and they're a little bit more into this new thing, which is let's get it out there, let's get it out there and as quickly as we can. If you think that the company can get the product out there quickly in advance is less important, but if it's going to take them nine months to a year, you know, typically you can get advances, $2,500, $5,000 advances, you know, if you have something special, maybe a slight bit more. You know, they're not gonna, a comp most companies in my arena are not going to give you $100,000 advances. I mean, that's, maybe if you come up with, with something interior, right, you know, in, in that's, that's technically proficient and, and large enough in scale, you might, or maybe it's a software application, but, but typically I'm just trying to be realistic. So you're talking about, about um, a royalty rate, you're talking about uh, minimums, and you're talking about advance. And that's really the core components of, of any licensing deal. And I always try to, when we get serious, about moving ahead with a licensing deal, I always try to get those things verbally sort of agreed to first before we develop the rest of the contract. So. And then I, I have down at the bottom uh, talking about the length of a licensing agreement. At, at Lifetime, they usually like to do five-year deals. I think it's in the inventor's uh, interest to have it a shorter deal because if this product's selling and doing well, then you have leverage to go back in and renegotiate it. You know? um, but uh, I, I don't never get hung up too much by the length of, of, the, of the agreement. Because if the product sells and it's moving, um, it's all going to work well. So you, you've, you've made up your mind, you want to go the licensing route. And we'll, when I talk to you in a, in a little bit about going on your own, we'll give you some of the alternatives of why you would go on a license. Uh, but I talk to a lot of people, and I'm always struck by... Uh, a lot of things. I, I get a lot of different types of people that come to me of all different um, shapes, sizes, and colors, um, sexes, and everything else. And one thing is kind of consistent, though. Uh, usually when people call me, they're usually surprised when I call them back because usually they've gone knocking on a lot of doors and they're really nervous. Even though I don't always call back within a day. It usually takes me sometimes a couple of days. But eventually I will call back. Um, they're usually nervous and usually haven't been through the process before and usually think like an inventor thinks. So they've created this thing, they put their heart and soul into this concept and they are a little frightened of sharing, you know, because they don't want anyone to steal it from them and uh, certainly, certainly uh, nervous. So I try to put people at ease and uh, relax them a little bit so that they can properly define what it is. Um, I'm, uh, but but rare, the exception to the rule is that you're going to find someone like me who actually works with a company who's that it, most companies either have nobody at all, <laughs> uh, so it's some sales guy, you know, or uh, the person is wearing all these different hats in the building, so they, they're not really dedicated to it and they can't keep up with it. So when you when you take your shot, I, I have a couple of recommendations because this is what I've learned over the over the past few years. One one of it is one thing is. Um, be professional, okay, be professional. So what does that mean? The first thing it means is you might want to write out your pitch, okay? I want to hear your pitch in as few words as possible, okay? Um, I want you to get to the point. We were talking about this a little bit at dinner tonight. Um, as a rule, and this is just for fun, because it, it just, it, it doesn't mean anything other than that it's fun, but, but my being a man, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. We're talking, a lot of times when men pitch me, they're, they're, they're very much into, if I ask them, so what do you got? They're right into uh, all the uh, materials that they use, you know, the RPMs, the, the technical stuff, uh, you know, 
the challenges they were up against and how they overcame these things. And it's interesting because they're totally absorbed in it. And I, after a minute or two, I really don't know what it is that they've, that they've done or what it is that they're trying to solve a lot of times. And that's a typical thing. So most of the room is men here. I'm just going to be honest with you. Try to think more in terms of what women do naturally, which is what are the benefits? What is it you're trying, what problem are you trying to solve? Um, what, what is the, what's the benefit of the, of the product? Um, you know, did we, I was setting an example tonight. We, just the other day, we have someone designed a tea kettle, pretty cool tea kettle that, that boils in half the time. I'm not sure exactly how it works, except that um, it, it, it not only has a bigger surface area, but it also routes some of the steam around, so it comes back down. It accelerates the whole, the whole thing supposedly works, and it saves 50% of the time. They were doing a sell sheet, and they went into all of the physical attributes and how they built it, and at no point I finally said, guys, here's the pitch. It boils water in half the time. And what's the benefit of that? It saves you money, it's good for the environment, and it saves you cost of fuel. Okay, done. That can sell. That pitch will sell. So, so the, what you're doing technically to communicate, you know, and, and what you're doing to develop the product in order to patent it and have these claims is very important. But try to switch into the benefit. And by the way, I learned this all. I had my own store for 17 years, so I learned uh, in the houseware industry, 95% of our customers are women. But where I really learned how to understand the benefit of a product was I've been on QVC many times. And I went down for a day-long training. And I was in a room with 30 people. And uh, we all made the same mistakes, uh, and, but except for one woman. Um, she, we all had incredible, I had a stirring device. That they, well, how's your stirring device? Well, it has a motor in it that could stir cement. And it works on four batteries. And, you know, I've made all the classic mistakes. She had this goofy box. I mean, it wasn't even patented. It was just a box. And, but by the time she finished, you could put your jewelry in it. You could put this. I was ready to buy it. So, you know, that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to, so you, you, when you communicate professionally, get across to me or anyone you talk to, what are the benefits of your product? What's unique and novel about it? You can write your pitch out on the phone so that you can get it down. You want to be able to give that in 30 seconds or less. We call that the elevator pitch. What can you do on the ground floor? If, you're, if you just happen to get on the elevator with the CEO of the company and he's up on the 30th floor, can you get your whole pitch in on the way up? It's really critical. Um, it also means probably developing a sell sheet for your product, okay? So uh, it, that's usually a photo or a drawing that, that explains, and then a sell sheet on, on what the benefits are and, and how you came about it for that product. So when you call, um, you, you, you want to... Uh, not go on and on and on and on, okay? Not go on, do not go on and on and on like I'm doing tonight. You, you, the per, probably the person that's on the phone with you has a limited amount of time. Um, by the way, for me, uh, I do talk to people on the phone, but I also have a submission process online through my website where I have eight questions and I would like you to answer those questions and usually that's what I ask people anyway. How, where are you really in the development process? That's what I, what I want to know. I want to get a snapshot of it. Have you done a patent search. Have you filed for a patent? Here's a really good one. Have you built a working prototype? Okay. Very, very important. A lot of people have an idea. They may have even done fancy CAD drawings and hired someone to do these professional um, CADs. Everybody knows CADs. The, uh, but they've never built one. I don't care if it's ugly. I don't care what it looks like. 
Um, does it function? Can you prove function that what it is that you're bringing to the table actually works? We'll get to down the road whether it's manufacturable, but in the beginning, you know, does it have function to it? So these are some of the things that you want to, to start. You want to also become aware and knowledgeable about the industry of which you're trying to exploit. So if you're going to call me up and, and now let's say you've done a patent search, you, you, de you, de you design a new garlic press, okay? It's, a, it's the best garlic press ever, ever. And you think it's, you should bring it to Lifetime Brands. Uh, you, 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 you write out your benefits and so forth. Have you done a patent search on it? Does it, does it, does it, uh, does it do something, have the claims that are different than everybody else's? Have you built one so that it functions and actually performs better than anyone else out there Can we show it? You want to then go out and try to get knowledgeable about that, your industry. You want to go out to stores like Bed Bath & Beyond, talk to salespeople. You want to talk to friends and family, of course, in the beginning, but you know, you know the old story. Your mom, your mom thinks you're beautiful no matter what, okay? And she's going to think your product is beautiful no matter what. But you really want to take it out to people who are a little bit more knowledgeable. You want to go out and see what else is on the store shelves. There's some other ways to find out about the industries, and I've done this a number of times. I usually stick to the housewares industry because I know it, but I sometimes have ventured off in other areas. For instance, I got into the kitchen design area. Well, there's a couple other ways to, to get knowledgeable about it. Go out and visit retail stores. Go out and visit showrooms like I did. Find out what the industry magazines are in the industry you're trying to exploit and go and sign up for all of them. Read them cover to cover each month and find out what the trends are and what's going on. One thing I love to do, go to industry trade shows. One of the first things I did was I jumped on a plane and went out to the KBIS um, Kitchen and Bath show in Chicago. I walked the whole show for three days. I talked to every single, every booth I went into, I sucked information out of the people that were in the booth to, to learn about it. So you want to take a professional approach, but, but you've got to learn and vet your industry in order to become pro professional. Um, we've talked about pretty much every thing on this page, I'm going to get to the last point in a second, but, but all those things that I just talked about enables you to get a better idea as you go each step whether your product is going to be accepted someday, and it gives you a better way to, to uh, condense your pitch so that when you finally do make the pitch, keep it short, simple, to the point. If I have questions, when you call someone like me, if you whet my appetite, believe me, I'm going to come back with a ton of questions. You, you'll, you'll be on the phone with me for an hour if I think it's, it's a great problem. The last thing, not, not necessarily the least, by the way, does everybody know what an, an NDA is? Everybody? That's, uh, Why don't you talk about this? Okay. All right, so, so when you do call someone like me or get involved with a company and you're a little bit nervous about what you should, should disclose, you can sign with the company a non-disclosure agreement, NDA. And basically what that is, it's an agreement between you and the company that says that uh, they're not going to take, take your idea. Your, your whatever information, the professional information that you share with them and share it with anyone outside the company. Uh, it doesn't mean to say that if they have been working on something similar in the company already, that they don't have a right to pursue that. That's why the patent filing is important because if you, especially with the new patent reform, the first to file, even if it's a provisional patent, is, a, is an important place to get your statement around. But it does allow you to, to converse. Now, sometimes companies will, like we do, they'll ask you to sign their non-disclosure agreement. Now, there's a reason for that. I know that a lot of people in the inventor community think that some big companies are out you know, to, to you know, control the process and sometimes screw them. It's a little simpler than that. I deal with hundreds and hundreds of people every year. I, I can't deal with hundreds of different NDAs. I have a non-disclosure on my website that you can check out. 
By, by most accounts, people think it's extraordinarily fair, but that's because I wrote it with the, with the corporate attorney at Lifetime Brands, and we put a lot of stuff in there to make sure that there was a, we, we wanted to be fair from the start. There are companies, you've got to read them carefully, and if you're confused about it, you know, have a, pat, a patent attorney look at it closely. I'm not talking about nitpicking. Look, you know, people are going to have, but, but you don't want to give up any rights you know, in that non-disclosure agreement. If you feel strongly enough that the company is not fair with a non-disclosure, you shouldn't sign it, you shouldn't show it to the company. So that's something that you're going to have to get a feel for. Yeah. I, I've heard tell, I haven't gone to a lot of companies, but a lot of people tell me that these days a lot of companies just don't, they don't offer to sign, they won't sign. That's just their well, policy. That, I don't know if they're just making Well, there, there's, there's all different levels, and I think that that's a sign to you uh, first of all, uh, there should be certain signs that, that tell you that certain companies are friendly, what I call inventor friendly, and want to do business with you, and others that aren't. Now, 30 years from now, every company is going to be in this country is going to be inventor friendly. But, but there's some companies that are out in front of the wave. Uh, the fact that a lifetime brands, and I'm not tooting their horn, I just happen to know the management for a long time. The fact that they actually listened to me, that I sat down and came in and said, if I'm going to do this, we're going to adhere to these 10 guidelines that are fair to inventors, just tells me they're open-minded to begin with, okay? There's no other company really, well, Progressive International is a pretty good company. They're a smaller housewares company, and Bill Rebels, the president, is a good friend of mine. Um, and they do, they're also fairly good at submissions too, but, but OXO, Bradshaw, a lot of the other ones, they don't really have anybody. It's really tough to get it through the problem. I'm sure that repeats itself in every, every industry. So when you're out looking for companies, try to look at those telltale signs. If there's nobody in the company that really is responsible for open innovation, or so, that's a bad sign. Okay? If, if no one ever gets back to you, it's a bad sign. If you end up talking to the, you know, the sales guy and he doesn't have time for you, it's probably a bad sign. If they won't sign an NDA, it's probably a bad sign. All these things are, they'd rather rip you off <laughs> than work with you. The companies that get it are the ones that realize that they pay 3 to 5%. And build in their profit margin. Everybody can make money, you know. And, and, and I have an example of a company that remained nameless, but they're called Yankee Candle. Oh, sorry, about that. I shouldn't say. That. They're a nice company. They're very nice people. I took a product up to them. I, they was such. A, I mean, I do this for a living, and the headache that I had, you know, getting it in there. I, I had a, a meeting with a room with like four people. I, I tried to crack jokes. There was no smiles. They never got back to me. They never, you know, it's like. I, I really was this close from saying, calling the chairman of the company or whoever runs the place and say, you know, I do this profession for a living and you guys are numbskulls. But anyway, uh, you get frustrated. And if you get frustrated, it's probably a telltale. Now, you'll get a little bit frustrated if you come to Lifetime Brands that I don't call you back right away, but I will get back to you within three or four days. <laughs> These guys won't get back to you in a month, okay? So, so that's, where, that's sort of where the cutoff is. Uh, there's another thing too. After you've submitted your idea, You'll know pretty quickly whether the company has an interest. Because, you know, they'll run it through, like, when I show them your product, I'll try to get back to you promptly. But if the, if the company thinks it's a great idea, uh, like we thought on the order screen, you know, I'll be all over your ass calling you, you know, three times a day to make sure that, you know, you'll start getting the calls and I'll track you down. If you're on the beach in Nantucket, I'll find you, okay? And that's the way it usually works. So, so you know what, it's, it's an uphill business that's inventing and taking things. Most products don't make it. The, 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 the key for you guys is how long to hang in there, how long to stick with it, and so forth. Uh, give it a reasonable amount of time, stick to it, follow your dream, but if you, still, if you get enough rejections, look, I did it with StirChef. I know, I, I was convinced. I, 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 two years later, I was the last person standing in the bunker 
You know, when everybody else had left, two of the partners fleed the country. I'm still in there hanging in there. I know I can do it if I just get the right. I, you know, I know you want to be strapped to the mast, but you got to listen to the signs around you. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a wisdom thing. You know, you got to know when to hang in there, when to double down, and when to, when to give up. In theory, though, that product was a great idea. It was a great idea. Well, the good power of a little Sterling engine that works off the heat. You know what? I'm sure that there are, are much better ways to do it. Well, never but, mind. Not about to get no, 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 but, but, but here's but here's here's the rehab and everything. You're, you're off. <laughs> well, it is. And by the way, I, I live in a town in Connecticut, and my uh, my uh, my house is one mile from Silver Hill, which is a very famous rehab. Yeah. Michael Jackson <laughs> was there once. And didn't work. Didn't work, but. Uh, but he was there. That was amazing. There were like 100 people outside the gate. And I didn't really realize how big Michael Jackson was until I rode my bike past it. And there was like 100 people outside the gate. All these famous, Liz Taylor, all these famous people. Anyway, I'm going to check in there someday first. But the problem with stirring, but, but this is an important thing. I wouldn't slow down and say it. Here's, here's the problem. Everything went great with the stirring device in terms of what everybody thought, positive feedback, price point, all of the things that you would normally evaluate by. But when we put it on the market, it appealed to people with disabilities and it appealed to senior citizens. And we sold, you know, we sold, you know, 20,000 of them and, and we got wonderful cards back with this, I love this product. But it didn't appeal to the mass. And, and I always say that if, you, if, if, if you're only appealing to a segment of the population, like senior citizens, like campers, like hunters, I'm going out to the MIC, you know how many hunting devices I'm going to see next week. Here's a chair that you can, you know, I, I don't hunt, so I don't, and, and, and if you do hunt, you probably have some wonderful ideas, but at the end of the day, if you develop a hunting product, it's only going to appeal to hunters, okay? And that's a small part of the population. So, it's okay, just make it yourself, take it out yourself, make a lot of margin on it, because you're not going to make enough on, on royalties. But we, but our high-end chefs, high, Martha Stewart's, they like to stir themselves. As, as someone told me once, this woman told me, they like to put the love in it. So, you know, what can I say? And then the, 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 the people that don't cook a lot, the microwave, they don't stir. So we kind of got boxed up. Suppose you go to a company and you want to get into their product line. And, uh, and they say they don't deal with directly with inventors. Is that? Okay, good question. Really good question. Some industries, uh, I'll give you one, for example, toy industry. The toy industry is notorious for using uh, agents. Okay, so uh, companies like Mattel and even they will not deal directly with an inventor. So you have to find a registered toy agent. Usually, there's a you can Google search for the toy association and find a registered list of, of, of agents. Uh, there are maybe some others. The houseware industry is not regulated like that. You can go yourself. Now, I've helped people do licensing deals. If you're going to use someone as an agent and do something, you know, you're going to have to give them part of the take. What I said in the beginning, though, was usually if people take a portion of the royalty, they don't get paid till you get paid. That's a good deal. If anybody wants ten grand up front, they're probably more interested in your money than they are. So that's a little bit about being professional. Yeah. Uh, do you think you can negotiate a uh, higher royalty rate if you have a product that already has traction that you've sold a few? Already, good question. You think the say, hey, this is our rate, no matter what? No, it's a very good question. The answer is yes. Uh, if you if you've proved on the ground, it gives you more leverage. Um, but but equally so, if it's patented, it'll it'll command a higher rate. At Lifetime, for instance, we'll we'll go five percent on a 
on a patented product, but we'll not, we won't go over 3% on, on a non-patent. And we've only done, out of the 27 licensing deals, only two of them have been non-patentable. If you came into me and you already had sales experience, uh, that might be helpful. Um, sometimes, though, um, we can see the, val the value in ourselves if we, we have enough experience in that. But there's no question that if you have a big success, like on a QVC or you sold a ton of them, that's certainly going to up your standing for sure. What's the highest royalty rate you've heard of? Not necessarily negotiated, but just heard of even outside of uh, Lifetime. Well, that's a good question. Um, I've, 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 I've done deals myself where I've switched off percentages to like 50 cents a unit, and the royalties come out around 7 8%. Wow. Um, I'm sure there's, I'm sure in, in software and things, I'm sure there's deals 10, 12%, I'm sure. But if you come in, and, and maybe you have more examples than that, but I'll tell you in general, if you come in and you ask for 15% royalty, that's part of what I'm talking about, being non-professional. I had a guy who I know well. Uh, this, is, this is a great story since we have time for it. We may be here all night. Yeah, I know. Uh, this guy should know better. Uh, he had a product, and uh, we brought it to Lifetime. They had some interest in it, and the people at Lifetime, made it, it was early on, they said, well, ask the guy what he wants for royalty rather than determining and he goes, I want a 12% royalty and I want $250,000 up front. And I said to him, that's not going to fly because this is like putting your house on the market, you know. And um, if you put it on for, you know, $200,000 and if somebody comes in and offers you $190,000, you're, you're going to negotiate with them. But if somebody offers you like $50,000, you're not going to call them back. It's so far out of the ballpark. So I said to him, you might want to tone it down. So he toned down his whole presentation back to 10% and only $150,000. You send it in yourself. I'm not getting in the way of this one. Well, two weeks later, he calls me and says, they never got back to me. Yes. And I called up the person in the company, and I said, by the way, how do you feel about that presentation? And the guy goes, the president of the division goes, is that guy on LSD? That's all he had to say. Okay. You, you want to research and find out, you know, you, you want to ask for as much as possible, but you also don't want it to be way outside of the purview. If you, if, 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 if you came in and asked me for 7% and, and I knew we couldn't go above 5 at least we're, we're going to be close on it. If you come and ask me 15 I, I won't call you that. I mean, isn't this truth that you make it up in volume? It wouldn't matter if it was 1%. It's 1% of what well, or 5% of what or 7% of, of what? So. Really good point. And, and here's what happens. So take that standard $20 item at, 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 at Lifetime. So just typical $19.99. Lifetime wants to make that and land it for 4 bucks. Everybody does. They, because Believe it or not, Bed Bath only wants to pay eight bucks for it. So they've got shipping, they got returns, they got everything else that comes out of their profit margin. So you you want to you got to tie if if you're if you're charging a dollar, you know, let's say for a royalty, now you're at five dollars. You just push the retail out to twenty five bucks. Well, guess what? There's about a forty percent drop off in sales when you go from twenty to twenty five dollars. So if you make the royalty so high, you're exactly right. It won't sell. You won't do the volume. You'll never get. That it reminds me of those that that the, those uh, that, that I think they were a rap group. They were down on the islands filming a video, and they all piled stuff on the plane to get off the island, and they kept putting more and more stuff on. And uh, who was it? It was oh, the yeah. And then the plane never got off the damn ground, and they crashed. And I was like, how sad was that? So anyway, I always think of that image. What, what you, you got to get the plane airborne, otherwise nobody makes any money. Yeah. How, how is the royalty calculated? When is it calculated and when is it paid? Well, good question. The, the, first of all, uh, our standard agreements are quarterly, okay? And, and that, you find that a lot. In fact, almost every license deal I've ever done is quarterly. 
I mean, I suppose you could set it up monthly in other ways. It depends on the industry, but typically it's quarterly. Uh, and then it's, it's basically 30, they, they, the company has 30 days to calculate everything and send you a check within 30 days of the end of the quarter. That's uh, typically how, how it works out. And the company is responsible for keeping track of the records. Now, agreements, when I say they're on wholesale, there's a slight definition of what wholesale is. Wholesale is the, the, the price that they sell it to the retailers for, but it's less any discounts or returns or damages. So, so if the company uh, has a discount allowance, an ad allowance or something like that, it could say, in other words, the retailer never paid for it in the beginning. They basically pay you the royalty on what was actually paid for in the product. And it's a standard boilerplate definition. So, okay, so who do you, who do you go to? You know, especially when you're, and I have to do, by the way, I have a guy I have a guy, he's a, he's a prolific inventor, he's a, a medical doctor, he lives in Florida, and I keep telling him I'm only a housewares guy, but he keeps selling, sending me things in all arenas. And every so often I find one that I like. He, the most recent one that he sent me was a new way, a new Oreo cookie. So I, when I first looked at it, I said, I don't have time for this. And then I thought, this is a challenge. I'm going to go to Kraft Foods and see if I can't, you know. So I've been out there researching the food industry, you know, not a lot. I haven't put a lot of time into it, but basically calling friends and family and finding out business people who to, who to see if I can't get somewhere, you know, with, with this company on, on his behalf. So, so I, it keeps me on my toes and it reminds me of what you guys are going through all the time. So the first thing is, who the heck do you go to? And when I go into Kraft Foods, who the heck do I go to? It's taken me two months to find out who the senior vice president of innovation is in the company and you can get his email address and then find, talk to his secretary. So we want to, we talked a little bit about research in your industry. So we'll talk a little bit about some of the special ways you can do that. I'm a big, 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 big believer in going out to retail stores. If, if, if there's a retail store that carries your product, go visit it. It could be a big store, a chain, like Bed Bath, or it could be a specialty store. Try to go to stores where that salesperson has been there forever and they know everything about the department. You can share your idea with them. They're not going to steal it from you. These are people on the ground. When I, a few years ago when I went to Yankee Candle, I went to research, I went to the Pier 1, uh, and I talked to all the salespeople at length. And, I, I shared everything with them, and they told me their ideas and feedback on it. I also went to the Yankee Candle store and talked to the candle maker and everything else. You know, go out and just, people love to talk about their profession, their trade, so I'm a big fan of that. Go through catalogs, you know, flip through them, uh, search online, internet searches. I'm a huge believer in trade shows. One of the things I was saying before is these, these national trade shows like MIC, um, like uh, Yankee Expo, are, are a little bit dinosaurs. You want to go out and walk the industry now. That's nasty. <laughs> uh, I think the brick is pretty thick. If you see like a cow come in, like a Steven Spielberg. Uh, industry trade shows, we talked about that. Uh, industry sales, sometimes at the back of, of, of industry trade magazines, you'll find lists of salespeople people looking for new ideas. You can see them back in the classifieds, a way you can uh, keep in touch with people. Um, you, you, when you're out licensing, I always like to say you want to pick the biggest, baddest company in the arena that you want to exploit, or you want to pick a company that aspires to be the biggest, baddest company, because you want as much reach as possible. Uh, it's funny, sometimes, and you want to manufacture. Sometimes people will, will uh, do you guys all know Everyday Edison's? Uh, and they do searches and stuff. And I, I love the guys. And Lewis is a good friend. Lewis Foreman is a good friend of mine. And Todd Stankum, very good friends of mine. But um, they'll do like a search for Bed Bath & Beyond. 
And I'm saying to myself, why would anyone ever want to license something to Bed Bath & Beyond? Bed Bath & Beyond is 4% of the housewares marketplace. So you could get a deal with them, and you might get on the shelf at Bed Bath, but you just lost. What about Walmart, Target, all the other ones? Like Lifetime Brands is, is, is services all 28 companies. So, so make sure you don't lock yourself in. Sometimes people go to QVC, and QVC wants an exclusive. That's fine. Give them an exclusive for six months, and then end the exclusive after that. Then you're uh, free to take it out. And then as we talked about already, seek out inventor-friendly companies, and I gave you a couple of telltale signs. You know, how they, how they behave, how they act, how they treat you will go a long way towards whether you want to do business with them. So, okay, so licensing. When, and, and, you know, we're going to put this into perspective in a moment because we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about taking your product to market on your own and some of the obstacles. We're kind of going the easier route now first, but why would licensing be a consideration for you when you're real passionate about your product and you want to make them? You guys have all heard of the vacuum guy over in England, uh, the billionaire? Dyson, yeah, Lord Dyson. No, he's not Lord Dyson. I mean, he was like down to his last dime, you know. His family kicked him out. He was living on the street. Now he's a billionaire. Okay, but that's a wonderful story, and, I, and, and I, God bless him. Uh, but, I, but, but, but that happens so rarely, you know. And, and uh, we'll talk about the Misto experience where, where, where Tom Rich made a lot of money in a short period of time. But generally, if your resources are really limited and you can't tap in, your, your alternative, if you want to go to market on your own, is you got to you got to come up with angel investment, or you got to borrow it from friends and family, or you got to steal it, which you know, which if you can get away with it is great, but if you get caught, you're in trouble. So you want to, if if if, if in essence, when you take it to a company to license it, they're the ones that are bankrolling you. They're really your investor when it comes right down to it. So, so so maybe your uh, personal resources are such that you can't afford a hundred thousand dollar launch everybody understands that or even if you had it you may want to not want to spend it that way um, there are a lot of times in a lot of industries that retailers do not want to carry a product from what we call a single skew vendor if you have one product in your line walmart bed bath they don't want to deal with you now here's the big secret in the house business. years ago when i took misto out in 1997-98 we got it into Macy's, Target, all these as a single skew vendor. And we did tremendous business with these guys. But when the sales started to go south and started to level off, they all wanted to ship the excess goods back. We said, no way, we're not taking it back. And that's when they started putting in place all these rules that we won't do business with things. Misto was actually the, the culprit of, of causing that whole crackdown. Now, a few years later, I, had, I developed a little gingerbread kit, and I took it to Bloomingdale's, and I found out that by getting it into Bloomingdale's, which would take a single skew, that I, I got a third part of Federated, which is Macy's, and I got a Federated number for Macy's, so I actually know the secret of getting into Macy's. Was that because the leverage they have with the other SKUs yes, in that's the current product? That's they exactly don't want right. somebody that can be able to say, that's right. hey, I don't want those back. That's exactly right. And when you when you show up at Walmart's store, you know, and, and they realize you only have one skew and they don't have return privileges with you, they're going to... And they don't know your financial condition, whether you have money. To, they, they don't want to run a sale and you can't ship the goods, you know. So, it's, so there, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, maybe your time is valuable. Maybe you're working on five different things at once and who the heck has the time to do one? Uh, maybe you don't want to be involved in running the company. It's a hard thing. Let me ask you, uh, does it matter when you approach your company if your company is listed as like a sole proprietor or LLC or incorporated? Does it, do they look at that or care about that? Yeah, they... they, they, they they, they, they will eventually look at you at that. 
some may even want uh, financial statements. If you're a privately held company or a sole proprietor, you may not want to share that with them. They're going to put you through some, some exhausted ringers. You may be forced eventually to go in the beginning through a distributor um, you know, to get things set up. Um, and distributors are middlemen that, you know, but they take a cut, you know, and it affects the margins and so forth. So the answer is they, they look at a wide variety of things. And just because you're enthusiastic and, and build 20,000 of them, uh, if they really like the product, uh, that's one thing. They, they might stand behind you. There are other ways of getting around this, too. I have a lot of experience now in 35 years. Sometimes we do LCs with companies. We show them the finished product, and then we actually get them. We give them a discount, and they take possession of it right in the pier in China. So there's ways that you can do. There's some novel ways around that. But in general, uh, they're going to be a little bit wary if this is your first, first venture. So if you want to go that route, have multiple SKUs, and maybe have partners that, that have the financial wherewithal to. What's a SKU? A stock keeping unit. And any, any single thing that you see in any store uh, has an assigned SKU number. Uh, and a SKU is so defined that if you have one product that's in five colors, that would be five SKUs. So every, every product that's in a package, separate package, has a SKU. Now, the second thing today is now every package that comes into a building has UPC codes. You guys are familiar with UPC codes? UPC is, I'm sure someone knows the definition universal of universal product code. Okay, universal product code. And that's a barcode so that they can take in uh, shipment, they can scan it, and it helps them for all their stock needs and inventory. Now they're going on the radio frequency, which uh, these guys at MIT are pioneering with Walmart. So not only will they be able to scan it, but even after it goes out the door, they'll know if it's being used in your home. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it's very scary. Uh, and the latest thing that you're starting to see, and then we're getting into big time and lifetime brands, is these new codes on the side where you can take out your little iPhone That's awesome. and take a picture of it and download it you get a video that shows you how the product works. And that's really the way of the future. So, so packaging is really, and an, 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 an what used to be simple style numbers are getting quite complex now, quite interesting. Um, maybe you're creative. And uh, in which case, if you're going to start your own business, you better surround yourself with people that can protect your interests. And then sometimes a, a bigger company just has more, more access to the marketplace than, 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 than you're ever going to get. So you're going to have to make that decision as you go along. Uh, some of the things that a big company can do to help you if they're really committed to you as an independent inventor is one of the coolest things is we get products all the time that are half-baked. We, we like it. Um, and then we, I'll give you the perfect example. And th th these things happen from time to time. A woman called me about six months ago. She had developed a colander. It sounds so simple. You just squeeze the handle, and the bottom opens up like a little B-52 bomb. So you don't have to turn it over, and you can just take your pasta right out. The first thing I said was, That's been, that has to have been done before. It's so simple. It makes so much sense. Somebody's done this. Well, I never saw anyone do it. So then I helped guide her through the patent process. She filed for a patent and so forth. Well, Lifetime Brands has taken all her designs and drawings, done all the CAD work, done all the rapid prototypes, and developed this thing way beyond what she ever did. They're going to eventually do it in a number of different styles and brands. That's what you want your company and partner with to come out with multiples. That's when it works when it works properly. Of course, the more it sells, the more incentive they have to go out and do that. So, um, sometimes uh, a, a big company can brand the product, which gives it instant shelf access and credibility with the consumer, which you can't do, which is important. They have established distribution patterns. 
Um, they can, as we talked about, do an assortment. Um, one of the things we've been trying to do with, with Lifetime Brands is acknowledging the inventor on the packaging, so we give credit, like, like the guy who developed the odor absorbing splatter screen. He's <laughs> Thaddeus Alamo. He's, we've become really good friends. He's got this vision of bringing fresh water to Africa. Okay. Uh, now we take water for granted here in this country because we have so much of it. But if you go to a lot of third world countries, they do not have access to fresh water a lot. The other thing is, I lived in Africa for a year, and I'm telling you, it's a big place. So God bless him. But I'm now on his board of directors. <laughs> but he's actually taking a bunch of his royalties and investing it into water filtration systems. And he's, he's he's got a wonderful vision. We actually put it on our packaging until our corporate attorney found out and shut it down. But we, we had his website, and if you wanted to make donations to him, then you could do that. So, but it's a, it's another thing that you're trying we're trying to do to to create this whole nice feeling. So. Uh, and then, if you do a licensing deal with a company, uh, and you remember Misto, that I talked about Misto, I got the, the person who started Misto to basically sell the product to Lifetime Brands, and now they're paying the licensing, similar to Rick, and uh, he now has enough time that he went back out and, and designed a, uh, a chicken roaster that's really cool and novel, and we just licensed that from him last month, so you can go on and do other things. There's already a platform, there's already a credi credibility way up there. So. Okay, so is anyone bored yet? Or tired? No, we're looking good outside too, so you know. Oh yeah, it's getting better. Fair enough. See the clear Red sky at night, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so now, what's the other route to go if you want? We're going on your own, and um, you know, it's the same initial development process. You come up with an idea, you run it past friends and family. You, 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 you make a working prototype to see if it works. You check and see if anyone's ever done it before, both by uh, patent searches and going to stores. You, you keep coming up with new iterations uh, that make it better. As you hear things, you improve it, and you, you try to get the thing going. Uh, and eventually, you, f you figure out what utilitarily wise helps it and, and, and develop claims and you follow it. So that's all the same. But, but what, do you, what, what do you have to do beyond that? Well. The Misto story was a, was a wonderful story. Uh, it took about $125,000 in seed money to, to get the item going. And you say, well, what, what was that money spent, spent on? Well, it was spent, it was, that wasn't even the early development of it and sort of the first prototypes. That was to develop the tooling um, to manufacture the product. Uh, it was to do all the marketing and packaging work, you know, because and, and, that has to be designed and developed. Uh, it was uh, putting together uh, sales sheets and so forth for the buyers. Uh, it was uh, travel to trade shows. It was setting up a trade show booth. Believe me, the 125 grand was burned through quite quickly. And uh, so you got to do a budget. So the question is, if someone's going to give you 125 grand, how much of the company are you going to get for that? I think they, the person that Mr. got 25% share of the company for the 125 grand. That ended up being pretty good because they ended up making two million dollars. But but then again, that 125 could have gone right down the shoes, you know, and, and, and been lost. So, um, so, so you have to do, you, you got to do a, a, a lot of work, um, and, and, and you have to consider, um, you know, obviously you want you want to have high aspirations. You want to be able to, to dedicate yourself full time to this effort, because if you're going to go on your own. You know, you, it's not a part-time job. You're going to have to be married to it. Okay, at least you at the mass, the owner of the company. Uh, if you 
push it off to somebody else, it may not, it may not get done. Um, so one of the other things I put up on the screen here too, and just not necessarily in order, but typically if you want to sell millions of something in their, in their lower price point, you're probably out, better out licensing it because just the capital investment to get that product off the ground is exorbitant. If it's a specialty product that, like we said, a hunting equipment or for disabled people, that maybe if you sell 10,000 10, pieces a year, it'd be great. Then you want to make more per unit. That would be more up your alley, maybe because it's all very much more manageable. It's not as crazy a business, and it's a little bit easier to get your sink your teeth into it. Um, but some of the early things that you have to think about in terms of spending your money on, and this is just a partial list, uh, you got all your early upfront development costs. Uh, you're not going to be able to farm them out to to uh, manufacturer and their development department. Tooling we talked about. Okay, manufacturing, you know, just going over to China, if that's where you're going to make it, or just resourcing here in the U.S. or figuring out who you're going to, you know, cost time, money, and so forth. Uh, I didn't put in there uh, packaging, uh, directions, all that type of stuff that, 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 that's a tremendous development cost. Directions. Have anybody ever done directions? What a pain in the ass that is. <laughs> just when you think you're there, you've got to do directions. Uh, you've got to build up inventory, folks, okay? Uh, you can't just show up one day, and if you want to sell 10,000 units, making them as you go, you got to have a quantity on hand. You got to prepare for that, so they're in the warehouse ready to ship out. Which goes to the point that you need a warehouse, okay? So you need a place to stock and store, which costs money, okay? You need a place to distribute the goods, okay? Distributing goods means you need a call center to take in calls. You need sort of some sort of management, overseeing, and bookkeeping to make sure everything's happening properly, a sales force or sales team to call in the orders, uh, and then a warehouse to go out and pick the products, ship them. And by the way, has anybody shipped any products recently to Walmart or Bed Bath or QVC? If you don't ship it exactly the way they want it, it comes back or they charge you. Walmart has a book this thick on all the rules. It's mind-boggling. I highly recommend you work with a, a, a qualified distributor who can, uh, and that was our first partner, Misto, actually owned his own distribution center. So all the shipping, he knew how to do it. It's a technical business. Because if you don't stamp the sticker, you know, on the top side in the right-hand north corner, you know, you're, it's coming back and it uses a profit center. So it's a very tricky, tricky area. You've got a bill, which means uh, all types of things. You've got to establish your, your price points, your, your discounts and all that, and negotiate all that. And then the hard part of it is collection. <laughs> You know, sometimes if the goods aren't selling, they don't pay for it, you know? It, it, and that's really, that's really a harsh reality. So it's great when it's selling like Misto and it's going crazy because, you know, you don't ship the next goods till they pay the last order. But, but a lot of times collection is a big time responsibility. And then obviously you have to manage your cash flow. So you have to have a bank account, you have to have credit lines and so forth to make it all work smoothly. So it's a very, very involved process. Misto was a great experience. We were single skew, but we had four people that were really dedicated to the company. One, the owner was full-time strapped to the mast. Two was a development guy who did all the sourcing of products, did all the engineering, did all the overseeing of production and so forth. He was strapped to the mast. I did sales and marketing, which I did out of my own environment. I also had my stores. And then we had the guy that owned the distribution center that did all the uh, call center. He did all the billing, all the phone calls, all the collection and stuff. And he also got paid for that. That's about the core group that you need of four people in order to get a, a, a successful uh, business going. And they all want to be paid. 
So hopefully you're doing business. Um, so what are the types of thoughts that go through your mind as you're trying to decide? Well, the first thing is, like we talked about before, what's, um, what's the product? What's the margin? Is it a heavy volume? Uh, is it a low volume? What types of capital resources uh, are, are necessary to get it going? And what type of financial resources do you have? So these are all things to factor into. Remember, if it doesn't work out for you this way, you can always go the licensing route. But so this is, this, you're really going on a limb here if you're going to do it on your own. Uh, do you have the time to do this? Are you willing to quit your day job? A lot of times, angel investors don't put up money for your salary. They want to see you, your sweat equity. They want to see you in the deal. Nobody wants to give just a pile of money to people that have no investment in it because those people, the first sign of trouble, they walk, okay? You ever been in a company where someone's walked? Okay, I'm still looking for some guy. We had two guys walk out on this on the store chef deal, you know, never paid their debts, never paid their bills, okay? That's, that's a really, really ugly, you know, there's no fun in there, okay? Um, what type of passion you have? Are you visionary? Are you crazy? <laughs> Either way, there's a fine line between the two. Um, we talked about the challenges within each industry. Uh, margins, high margins, low margins. Typically, if it's a higher the margin, the more apt you are to do it yourself, okay? The lower the margin, more volume oriented, the more you probably need, need help. And you also have your issues of quality of life. If you're raising a family and all that type of things, it can be a tremendous strain on what you're trying to, trying to accomplish. So, so anyway, the, the, it, it, there, you can have success both ways. I would say that as I go around the country, 95% of the people I speak to are really interested in licensing. Um, that's usually where it's easiest to, to raise capital. Um, if you have, if you figured out a new uh, energy solution for the planet, and uh, you're a uh, chemical engineer or scientist that's figured this out, and you're you have a consortium of backers behind you, you know you probably want to take it on your own and, and vet it out and prove prove it out, and maybe there's more money in that. But if you're a serial inventor that's working on household goods, you know. You probably want to consider the licensing route unless you can develop a company that you can pound out product after product. But it's an uphill uh, battle uh, taking a product to market on your own. Um, just know that and know that, that although the rewards are greater, the obstacles are greater too. Uh, and know that with licensing that the odds are stacked against you usually. You really need a really good idea. When I, when I get ideas, I say it's like applying to Harvard the first 50% of them a lot of times go right off the table because they're not thought out or they've been done before. People haven't researched it better in the marketplace. And you're talking about, if I see 100 things, there might be 10 things that the company really is interested in and we might sign licensing deals on two or three of them, that type of thing. So, and out of those, maybe only one will make it. So, you know, you got to have a good, usually people are passionate about what they do. The common theme that I've seen, we didn't talk tonight about Rick. Ricard, I've had two examples now of products that have been, I've known Rick, Ricard, you guys know Rick? Uh, Rick's a friend, good friend, I've known Rick for, I met Rick in 1998 at the House for Show when we were doing this though and he had the booth next to us. And uh, Rick is an example, like Tom Richard, you know, people are really passionate about what they do, really got into the details, did an awful lot of work to, to, to check out his product and made the decision to go into market on his own and God bless him. Now recently, um, like Misto, I went to Rick and said, would you be interested in Lifetime Brands? You know, took over the operation and, 
uh, could dramatically increase your volume. And uh, after a few months of negotiating, we worked out a deal now. So um, I'm happy to say that. Uh, and it's going to be it's going to be a fun year next year with Bagel Butter Stories. But uh, but uh, but that's that's sort of an example. So so anyway, I've talked all night, and you guys, I'm sure, have questions, and I'm, I try to keep this as personal. Oh, as I know possible. I have a question. Yes. Okay. So say you make a, a fun product, okay, and um, you did up a licensing deal, and, and you're getting your royalties, and um, but say you want you want some of the product to give as gifts, like a wedding gift or something to somebody. Can you put, put it as part of your licensing deal that you get? A small quantity sure. of, pro of products sure. so many times a year. Yeah. First of all, if, it, if you want like 24 or 48 of them, you can build that right in. You want 24 or 48 a year. That's not a problem. Um, if you want to have access from time to time to buy them at cost, like if you want to buy a couple hundred, okay, as long as you're not reselling them, yeah. I'm sure they would cut that deal with you too. Um, they're probably going to be asking you, like in the case of Rick Carr, when we were first analyzing it, I, I, I asked them over and over again, 76, 72, so now if Rick wants some back, <laughs> I'm sure we'll give them back to uh, So yes, you can negotiate that. And the, the key is they, they, they don't want to be competing with you in the market. Like I have a lot of people say to me, we want to do the royalty deal, but we'd like to keep QVC for ourselves, and uh, you sell everybody else. Well, the problem is if they go too low at QVC, it affects the whole marketplace, and then we're all who's going to call them. So the other thing people ask me a lot is, can I manufacture and you guys ship and distribute? A company like Five Time Brands has no interest in it because they want to take responsibility for the manufacturing from everything from start to finish. They don't want to be beholden. They've got a big order with Walmart and they're waiting for you to produce the goods. That's that's not what they want to do. And you have the right to uh, check their books periodically, right? Yes, you do. You sign a licensing deal. Every standard licensing deal includes something that you have the right to audit. Uh, sometimes that might be at your own expense or maybe under certain circumstances it would be triggered. Uh, typically people, I've never actually, of all the licensing deals, I've never been through an audit yet. Typically audits result when, the, when, when someone's not happy about the results and they think that they're being shortchanged. If you go in though uh, and find any problems, there's usually penalties and, and they have to rectify this, the, the problem ASAP. But yes, there's, there's very standard these licensing agreements are usually 14 or 15 pages of which you can condense all the important stuff into one page. So all the rest is boilerplate, you know, protections and indemnifications and you know, all that type of stuff. So. Yep. Um, when uh, a company is developing this for you and it, they develop it into this and into that, into that, how does that work? Um, are those yeah. new ideas? Yeah. You, you've licensed to this idea, but Good question. Um, usually, you build into the agreement that if, if they if they add extra features on top of you, if, if they're still using your patented product, they pay a royalty. They pay you the royalty on it. So uh, you want them to go out and do do more things and, and expand the line and, and broaden it out. As long as it's um, as long as it uses your core technology that you've patented, no matter what they add on to it, you get a, you get a royalty. Further to that same question then, two things. One, five years goes up, they've sold a bunch, but they're not taking it onward for whatever reason, or you decide not to take it yeah. on. One, do you get to use and build on all those new innovations? Yeah. Two, what happens to the tooling and stuff? Is it usually at the end of even a happy uh, yeah. uh, parting in five or 10 years? Well, there's a couple ways of doing that. First of all, we usually build in our agreements, yeah, that if we, 
if we find something substantial, if we want to improve the patent and find something substantial, we usually go back to the inventor and give them first right to file it. And, and if, they, if they want to do that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It all depends on the situation. But that's usually a fair deal, that if, if, we've, if we develop something. Uh, now, if we develop something and we want to, want to patent it, the inventor doesn't want to patent it, we patent it. Uh, I'm not sure that the company would I'm necessarily give that up. Unfiled improvements, yeah, you have absolutely right to do that. Yeah. Sure, if it's unfiled. Um, the the other, what was the other? The, the tooling, you know, if oh. you're happy in five or ten years, we've yeah. all sold a couple yeah. million of them, but for whatever Well, reason, sometimes you can go to the same factory. Sometimes uh, the, that tooling's already been amortized. Sometimes the factory uh, will own it, and then they, they may want to charge you for it. There's a whole bunch of ways that you can negotiate that. Sometimes the tooling's spent. Uh, Sometimes you don't want to be locked into that factory, so you walk away from it and you start with a new factory to tooling. Sometimes you take the whole project to another company and they just want to start from scratch. I have that going on right now with Smartsman. We finally pulled the plug on, on it because they got under 100,000 piece minimum, and I have two companies looking at it now, and they might even put a new name on it and they might start it all over from scratch. So it all depends what you want to accomplish, but, but usually those things are, once the deal's over, it's, it's over again. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question regarding the SKU and the uh, EMPC. Now the SKU, is when they scan it at the store? Uh, yeah, uh, yes. The SKU is when they scan it at the store. Well, uh, yes. And, well, no, they're both scanned at the store. The SKU is usually the, uh, the unit that the manufacturer uses and that the buyer orders, places the order by. So the SKU is more used between a manufacturer and buyer to do purchase orders. The UPC code now are, are built so once it gets scanned at the register, the price comes up automatically. So that gets scanned at the register. Yeah. But, but you're using SKU in the idea of just saying yeah. they want more than one product. That's I think correct. you're just using That's the word correct. SKU yeah. with product. Yeah, you know, it's an old. The manufacturer doesn't want to buy yeah. one product from one. Yeah, that's correct. And, and the even, in different, even if it's got five colors, they're not considering that five SKUs in terms of that buying. Yeah, yeah. They agreement. want the ability, the, the bottom line is exactly right. They want the ability to have leverage against you. There's nothing better than a retailer that they owe you money that, and they're not paying it, that they can use that as leverage. See, the reason why Lifetime Brands is the number one distributor of housewares is they, have, they will take back virtually anything. If it's not selling, they take it back, they send it out to somebody else, they repackage it, they do it. Little guys don't have that ability to stand behind the product. So. A question about uh, Europe selling in Europe. How big is the European market? Is Lifetime Brands selling there? Yeah, good question. Uh, first of all, I'll answer your question. Well, Lifetime Brands has a relationship with a company there called Fackelman, they're out of Germany, and they're the Lifetime Brands of Europe. They don't own Fackelman, they just share ideas. So if we send, find something that's selling in the U.S., we oftentimes recommend that they better do a deal with Fackelman, and likewise, they come here, so we loosely connected. Loosely connected. Do you share uh, products? Do you share money? No, don't share money. Do not share ownership. We'll you share products once in a while. <laughs> it's well, it's, it's like the, the European market, I know Europe well, I grew up in Europe, I grew up, I lived there for five years, and I went over and launched Misto in Europe. Yeah, it's tough for U.S. products. Yeah, it's, it, it's tough for even their products because uh, every country in Europe, it's like, it's like uh, I know they have this European Economic Union, but they all uh, like hate each other really still, you know, England, France, Germany, I mean, you know, I went into a show in Germany, you know, the French and the Germans don't even talk to each other, they might as well be a They'll only import the finest from each other. Well, there you go. I mean, the joke over there is what you don't want is a French car, German food, and an English lover. That's like a bad <laughs> But, um, oh, that's, but, that's but each... Oh, can I write that down? You can write that down. 
Yeah, but you got to have a label that that the marks on them. Well, the thing is, That's each maybe. each one of these countries, first of all, they have their own language, so the, so the packaging has to be specific to the and the, the, the laws. Now, there are common patent laws within the EU countries, but like for instance, England is not an EU country, you know, so they'll use their own currency, you know. So they're all they're, it's, it, there's a little bit of technicality there, but the bottom line is when we got Misto and Harrods in London, we were so excited. But it really didn't sell nearly as well as it did here. We, we then got in you know, for attempts or whatever in France, and we, we had our success stories. But we, I went over to meetings over there. They're just not. I don't want to. I don't want to. There's wonderful things in Europe. Okay, I mean, you know, beautiful continent, wonderful culture, way of life, all that stuff. Yeah. But they don't quite have the drive that we do here, and I, and I mean that sincerely. Well, I mean, they got something though. I haven't been in a lot of countries, but things work over there. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're a little different, and I'm not going to get into the, the, the geopolitical landscape, but what I'm saying by drive is, is we, when we take an item like Mr., we want to sell millions, I mean millions, I mean, because we want to, we, that's our goal from the beginning. We're, we're not here for fun. We'll work 24-7, and we want to make a few million bucks, and that's the way, that, that's the way it's all, that's what everybody's goal was. Over there, they have more meetings and smoke cigarettes and have coffee and talk about a thing. Beer, they, snaps, snaps at lunch. Snaps at lunch. Uh, and they, they, what's the fish called? The herring that they eat in Denmark or whatever. You know, the but they, they were happy when they sold like 50,000 pieces in Germany. 50,000 pieces. I'm in a meeting, I'm like, one out of I said, 50,000 pieces? You should be selling 5 million pieces. I mean, I'm like, and they just think I'm a crazy American. They're like, I should be with you. But it, it wasn't that I was trying to be mean. I was just, what happens is, is, there's just so many barriers over there uh, within the countries, the distribution networks. The, the uh, of course, they've removed a lot of the tariffs and so forth, but the language issue. Um, it's it, they don't quite have they don't have the Walmart, you know, or, and that, that type of mega, you know. We are a consumer no. piece, so they do. They want Ocean State job lots. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, not mean we have we 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 you know, that's all part of the necessary. Yeah, that's why they use one tenth the energy that the United States per capita. Uh, don't get me wrong. I lived in Switzerland for five years. I, I travel in Europe all the time. I, I love going there personally. I'm just saying. I'm just. I'm not. And I'm not trying to make any big bold point other than to say that that this. If you want to do business in Europe, it's an uphill battle. There's a lot of patent issues. A lot of patent filing issues. The the you have to translate it into multiple languages. You go over there. You got to fight battles left and right. They're not quite as motivated like we are to just the pure sheer greed of, of making millions of dollars. You can't make one infomercial and then yeah. see it on TV well, and yeah, then exactly. sell. A French car, a German. You don't want a French car, a German food, or an English lover. Okay. Well, My I wife always laughs about that because she's I, Irish. I, I, so. that, that's a good one. I, uh, so. I don't use uh, but, but by the way, going to Europe is fun. I'll tell it right. <laughs> but what, what, what I did in Europe is, is we ended up uh, hooking up with a large company called Le Creuset, which is a large cookware company. But even they had, they had issues. And they, they, when we were selling you know, a million and a half units a year here, they were maybe selling 50,000. Like, yeah, we, we, get, we get premium German product that's a filter. And uh, it takes the 16 weeks to get. You know, and, it's great like, it's like and great nice quality, but do you know something? Here's something fun for you. Nice products from Sweden. You can well, Sweden. They go on vacation. vacation. They don't even answer the phone for eight months. Well, you know they have a quality of life up there. Uh, yeah. But but here's the thing. Do you know that if a if a if a product is manufactured in China, and shipped to Germany, okay, and they don't do one thing to it, but they repackage it and ship it to the U.S., that they could say made in Ger from made in Germany. 
So it's really kind of interesting uh, something is, but there's no question the German economy is on fire. Uh, they, they, they're very industrious, cool place, and yeah. uh, but it's, but uh, you know it's a little bit different. Well, we had all the switch gear for for a switch room with electrical power distribution, and the one panel we I'm talking about one panel it would cost uh, eleven thousand dollars for American-made Allen Bradley equipment, but for Siemens equipment. Because it all has the CE label, right. we have to build it with the CE right. European label. Right. Right. $28,000 for right. the same exact function. Yeah. Same function, just with the label. Well, that's what you call markup. Yes, well, it's their cost. Too. Yeah, yeah, no question. All right, you must be tired. You must have to take a break here. Oh. Thank you very no, much I'm, for being here. You got to you want to call or you have your cards, you said. You still yeah, I still have some. Uh, I, I have my UIA cards, but they have my, my, yeah, uh, my email address.